0: Seeking Stability and Circularity for European Metals. Interview with Chris Heron and Killian O'Donohue. This is episode 48 of the My Energy 2050 podcast. I'm Michael LaBelle. Here we speak to the people building a clean energy system by 2050. What do materials like zinc, magnesium, or even finished products like aluminum have to do with energy? These are the raw and processed materials building the new energy system. We can always talk about oil and coal, which built our current economic and industrial base. But nowadays, we are creating not only our new energy system, but we're creating a new industrial base. For this episode, we're joined by Chris Herron and Killian O'Donohue. Killian is a former student of mine, and maybe you've noticed, but I've been mining all my students on LinkedIn to come and talk on this podcast. But as you can see... They've turned out to be great and very successful in their different jobs. They are, both Chris and Killian, working for the European Metals Association. It's a perfect timing to talk to them because there's a lot of shortages, as we'll get into in the interview, even around magnesium, which is a basic material. And even the European Manufacturers Association has put out warnings about shortages. The complexity of manufacturing from a global supply chain has never been more apparent than now. Course, some of these shortages were caused by the impact of COVID-19, but also there's a bit of geopolitics involved as well. I talked about this in previous episodes, particularly the one on the carbon storms. I'll put a link in the show notes. There are three key topics we discussed today. One is the high energy prices and the impact this has on manufacturing in Europe, the competitiveness of European industry, and third, the need to prime the circular economy in Europe. My takeaway from Our interview is making Europe competitive in manufacturing is a big challenge. Even the carbon border adjustment mechanism that is proposed by the EU, as we discuss, is insufficient to bring back industry to Europe. When I develop the introduction for these episodes, I try to be very clear in the key takeaways, what I learned in the discussion. For some reason, today... It's very hard to summarize it in a very clear and concise manner. I think you have to listen to the episode with Killian and with Chris. They have a wide knowledge and they really understand European manufacturing. They understand the challenges of having raw resources brought to Europe and either manufactured abroad or remanufactured here in the EU, being respectful of the environmental and social impact that raw materials do have. We go into great detail about the energy intensity of the sector and why high energy prices really are damaging the competitiveness of Europe. But of course, Europe overall is resource poor, both in energy resources and in raw materials for manufacturing. So this is one reason Europe has to import so much. The interview really exposes the weaknesses of this in Europe. What I really like, though, is at the end of the episode, we do discuss this circular economy. This is being promoted in the EU as a means to make Europe more competitive. But as Chris points out, and Killian as well, is that Europe needs to prime this circular economy. That means the raw resources, the newer resources that are go, go into manufacturing or battery technologies or making lightweight frames for cars or for airplanes, actually it has to be brought into the EU and then after a while can be circulated again. This is highly complex. So when we talk about maybe 2030 goals, it's really not far off to talk about these 2050 goals in redoing the manufacturing sector in Europe. I hope this episode provides you with a broad knowledge, but also in-depth knowledge too, of manufacturing, the challenges it has operating in the EU. Thank you for listening to the podcast. If it's useful to you, please share it. And now for this week's episode. I would like to welcome to the My Energy 2050 podcast two representatives of the European Metals Association, EuroMetal. Chris Heron, he's the Director for Communication and Public Affairs, and Killian O'Donohue, Director of Energy and Climate Change. Chris and Killian, thank you for coming on the podcast. Thanks for having
1: me. Thanks for having me. Great to be here.
0: Great. I'm really excited about all the um, topics we're going to cover and hopefully not. Uh, we definitely have time and I'm not quite sure about all the questions because as I mentioned uh, before with Chris, you guys are the center of everything now. The whole discussion is about raw materials. We have trade disputes or trade restrictions or trade issues with with China, for example. We have batteries coming online, a big surge in in, uh, the automotive sector transitioning and needing lithium for the batteries and other raw materials. And so I'm really excited to have you on today. But before we get to there, maybe I can ask you a bit about your background and how you came to have the jobs that you have now. So maybe uh, Chris, uh, I'll start with you first.
2: Yeah, thanks. Well, it's been a long, long time in Brussels. I've been 10 years in Brussels and seven years working for the non-ferrous metals industry, uh, actually started out at university studying English literature, so quite a departure from my days of poetry and plays, uh, back in the UK, uh, but came to Brussels to, to find a job in 20, 2007, ended up working for the battery industry, which back then didn't have all of the hype that it does today. Uh, and yeah, seven years ago, moved to to Eurometa and the metals industry, working on communications, so touching a lot of points, and and gradually moving more and more into this raw materials field, which in the last three years, as as you say, exploded in Brussels as well. So uh, yeah, that's short background for myself.
0: Okay, great. So it's so interesting that you what you got your degree in, but it's mainly through experience that you've picked up your expertise.
2: Yeah, we're fortunate in Eurometa. We work with our member organisations, and they bring a whole load of technical expertise from all areas. So we, we benefit from that and uh, translate it for, for the context in Brussels.
0: Yeah, no, I, I actually want to compliment you first on, on your website, not just because you're a guest, but <laughs> actually, if you go to the website, uh, you have these issue papers, I think that's what it's called. And it's just one page summaries. And it's very clearly stated, kind of the the summary of the issue and kind of your position, but it's really informative of of how it's written. So I, I wanna compliment you on that. Are you behind part of that? Yes.
2: Uh, yes, probably don't update it as regularly as we should, but <laughs> <laughs> yes.
0: No, no, but at least it's there, right? It Accu- accumulates over time, so exactly. it's really good. Uh-huh. And uh, Killian, let me turn to you. Uh, I know a bit about your background as a, as a former student, but maybe how, actually, since you left the university, how, how did you end up at Eurometo? Yes,
1: yeah, so I, well, I, you were my professor, Mike, when I studied in CU, uh, and I specialize in energy. I specialized in energy, particularly energy security in Central Europe. Back then it was all about gas, portation of Russia gas, etc. So actually I wrote my master thesis on it. Then I went to the European Commission for a traineeship. I did a six month traineeship working on Southern Gas Corridor. That was this pipeline from um, Azerbaijan to EU, which kind of diversified supplies in the region. Then after that traineeship, um, I went to Fleischmann Hillers, a rather large uh, consultancy in Brussels, kind of specializing in lobbying. So I worked for the energy team there for five years. And then I went to Euromento what, five and a half years ago now, where I work on climate energy as well. What I would say, though, is I probably moved a bit from the security supply more towards the competitiveness, kind of price of energy side of things. So. You have the famous triangle, security supply and um, price, et cetera, of the three. So I've kind of shifted a bit, but I still work, uh, Yeah, still in the energy sector.
0: Mm-hmm. No, I mean, and actually it's, it's a great, both of you. I think it's a great description, both how your jobs have changed over time, but also how I would say the energy sector is changing over time in this energy transition. So it's okay. We certainly have our, in the EU disputes with Russia and gas prices currently. And so that's an issue, but it seems like this transition and making this transition is be becoming much more about the technology and the resources that are necessary.
1: Yeah, if I can say, I think it's quite—it's kind of pendular. The priorities and energy kind of shift. Like when I first came to town, it was all—it <clears throat> was all about security supply. Yeah, so you know that was the big issue. Then it's kind of shifted all to decarbonization, and I, I don't think it will shift back. But we really
2: see kind of shift in the in the priorities that decarbonizing power is now kind of the, the big focus
1: mm-hmm.
2: and for security of supply. That's where the raw materials discussion now comes in, because the the dependence on fossil fuels is a concern it will be replaced by a dependence on metals or raw materials as we move from a fossil based society to a metals intensive one. So I'd say security of supply has become a lot more acute on my side, as, as Killian's had that shift on his side. <laughs> And if I can just just
1: add, I don't want to preempt the discussion for later. But it was, if we had this podcast uh, a year ago, it would be all about decarbonization. But now, what we've seen with this whole gas issue in Europe is electricity prices, and energy prices have gone through the roof, and basically, security supply costs money. We don't have security supply on the gas side, and it's affecting all aspects. So it's kind of it's come back on on the scene, unfortunately, for for policymakers and for for industry in Europe.
0: Yeah, yeah. Actually, well, maybe maybe we go go with the high high prices at right now as the next question, and what what is the impact of high electricity prices and also high gas prices in the EU?
1: Yeah, so I, I can I can go first, and Chris feel free to feel free to compliment. Um It depends on what industry you're referring to, and um, but as non-ferrous metals, we're, we're probably we're the worst hit industry, I would say. The reason is we're the most electro-intensive industry so in making metals particularly primary metals about 40 percent of your cost is just electricity and when electricity prices go through the roof that's a very big issue because um, metals are global price it's a bit like oil there's only one price for metals and the electricity component comes very high which it has in europe then it's very hard to compete and if you speak concretely we've seen a lot of uh, curtailments and shutting down of plants and that's been the case and in Netherlands, in Bulgaria, and in Italy last week, in Spain as well. So it's, it's quite serious. We've been hit really, really hard. And I would just say the last thing without getting too technical is it depends, obviously, on how you procure electricity. So some have kind of long-term contracts. some are fully exposed to the spot prices. And when you're fully exposed, then when prices become what they have, uh, it becomes a very big issue. And I know lots of your listeners might not be that focused on electricity markets, but just to give numbers, last year, you were paying about maybe 40, 50 euro megawatt hour for electricity. Uh, today, it's it's over 250 euro megawatt hour. I'm speaking general generalities here because it depends on the member state, but you've seen a four or five fold increase. So it's a huge impact. And I'm speaking here about electricity, but the biggest driver is the gas price is causing the electricity price to go up so uh yeah we're being hit uh hit very hard i would say
0: wait so so uh last year was 40 or 50 megawatt hour and now it's 250 megawatt hour
1: yes so that's the spot price so that's the the spot for for electricity so that's what you're we're looking at it depends on the member state obviously in the nordics it's cheaper you know and in central europe it's more expensive but yeah you're looking at five-fold increase so a massive increase but the price differs every hour obviously but uh there's certain hours where it's extremely expensive. Uh-huh,
0: uh-huh. And then, uh, actually, maybe we should back up. I probably should have done the second question was, what is the non-ferrous <laughs> metals industry? Yeah,
2: I can give that. A. Okay. So first, what are non-ferrous metals? Uh, a question we get asked also a lot in Brussels. Non-ferrous means everything but steel, in summary. And so what we talk about are a range of up to 30, 40 50 metals, uh, I don't know the exact number, uh, that we are representing as an association. That includes big base metals, such as aluminium, copper, nickel and zinc, which are predominantly those with the very energy intensive operations that Kilian talked about, that are very hardly hit. Also precious metals, gold, silver, platinum and others. And then a lot of the newer, smaller metals, which we need for the energy digital transitions. So lithium and cobalt, which we need for batteries. Uh, and a lot of other metals with with long names that that continue, and the industry itself is a value chain. So as Eurometa, we represent all companies in Europe who are part of that value chain. So companies which mine those metals, uh, which refine and smelt those metals, uh, transform them ready for going into the market, and also at the end of life recycle them and and put them back uh, and get that source. Um, the Electricity price question is particularly hitting the smelting and refining stage because that's extremely energy intensive, um, but all stages of the value chain, are, yeah, within our within our family.
0: Mm-hmm. And Chris, maybe actually this is a good. Um area to to focus on. And I'm just going to use the example of aluminum, but maybe you can provide a different example. But I would just ask you to explain maybe the the value chain or the the supply chain of of aluminum and that that kind of includes magnesium and maybe the issues that Europe is facing with those. And uh, if you know where I'm going with this question is kind of uh, describe how how is aluminum made uh, in Europe and, you know, what are the issues around it right now?
2: Yeah, so we can complement each other on this, I guess. But in general, Europe for most metals is in, it dependent on imports for the primary raw materials. There is some mining of metals like uh, zinc and copper in Europe. There's very le- little overall for aluminum. Uh, aluminum okay. in, my, in, my, in, in my vocabulary. Um the, uh, the raw material is bauxite. Predominantly, it comes to Europe from from Guinea in Africa. It then goes a further step, the alumina production, uh, where we do have some capacity in Europe for, for making that conversion, I think in Ireland and in Greece and in some other, other places. Then it will go to a primary uh, smelter who will do the energy intensive process of turning the, the alumina into, uh, for example, metal bars or ingots, which will then continue further, be put into a shape, uh, an extrusion, for example, which would then go to the final application. And Europe has varying levels of um, like industrial strength. Usually it's mining side, the primary raw materials, as mentioned, we dependent on imports, um, smelting and refining for the base metals. We always do have a production base and probably Killian can, can complement on the challenges and what we've seen historically there. Fabrication downstream is a strength of Europe, adding the value to products, putting them into, for example, cars or packaging applications or, or construction. And on recycling side as well we have we have a good strength. So aluminium about 50 percent, 40 to 50 percent of Europe's own supply that it gives itself is already coming from recycled sources. so it is quite significant and I think a quarter of all the metals recycled in the world happen here in Europe. so is a good area of strength. So that's a run through the value chain. but Killian, maybe you could focus in on the the smelters, refiners for aluminum and what we've seen in the last decades.
1: Yeah, yeah, no, I think that's kind of a very good overview. What I would say so on the smelting refining side, it's all about the electricity cost. Basically, the key we say localization factor is availability of kind of competitive electricity. So traditionally, they would have been located next to hydro plants or maybe nuclear power plants. We had kind of lots of available kind of base load electricity. And um, what we're seeing in Europe today is not that positive. I think since 2008, we've lost about one third of our smelting capacity. Uh, It's multifaceted, the reasons, but the key reason is electricity prices have become very expensive, particularly in mainland Europe. So that's kind of what we see. That's the the overview of the map. And last thing we just say is there's kind of a lot of aluminium we import from Norway and Iceland, which are not in the European Union, but are part of the EEA area. So that's kind of how we how we operate and Norwegian and Icelandic producers are also members of, of our association.
0: Okay. Okay.
2: Just I uh, remember you were asking about magnesium and how that fit into the story. So uh, most metals, when they go into products, they don't, you don't just put aluminum in a product or copper or, or et cetera, you alloy it together with different metals. So different sort of seasonings of of other metals, which give it specific properties. So aluminium typically goes into a car alloyed with magnesium and with silicon, and so if you're producing aluminium in Europe, you want also a, a good secure supply of um, of those alloying elements to go in, which takes us to some of the challenges the industry has experienced with with the magnesium shortage. I don't know if you'd like to ask
0: a question. Yeah, yeah, actually, yeah. yeah, Why don't you tell us about the magnesium shortage? That's that's that was part two of the question. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs>
2: um. So big concern in Europe from the aluminum industry, the metals industry, also downstream sectors such as the car industry, that the stocks of magnesium Europe has will run out imminently, um, the reason being the concentration of production within China. Uh, China is the global global dominant player for most metals, but it has a really high market share for, for some, magnesium being one of them. Uh, Europe is dependent on China for 95% of its magnesium supply uh, coming in. And the problem we've had is China also has an ambitious climate policy, which it's starting to implement. And it did it in quite a drastic way in recent months, with some regions closing down production uh, to meet regional climate targets. Magnesium is itself quite an intensive production process. So 50%, I think, of magnesium production in China was curtailed or closed for an indefinite period. That means that the world supply of magnesium automatically was drastically lowered and we started to realize in Europe that supplies were running low. It's not a metal you can really keep stocks of for that long because it it has a short lifetime until it goes into the products. Um, And I think about a month ago, the industry started to raise the alarm bell with the European Commission and others that if something didn't change in China, we wouldn't have magnesium, which means no aluminium alloys. Without aluminium alloys, you have no car production and the knock-on impacts can be quite, uh, quite severe. The the sad thing is that 10, 20, I think 20 years ago, Europe had a magnesium industry. So uh, in Norway and France and in a few other countries, we did make magnesium. Um, ultimately, that production was lost predominantly to China uh, through through dumping of, of more polluting imports. So it's kind of a, a failure of Europe's industrial policy from 20 years ago that we don't have a source of magnesium production today. I guess you could say there's a concern in the sector as well that magnesium 20 years ago, there's, 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 there's a risk. You know, we, we make similar decisions for other metals under pressure today and, and increase our dependence on, on China not go in the opposite direction. So mm-hmm. I think it's a concerning situation of a bigger problem.
0: So this story is about magnesium, which I guess is, it's widely available. So maybe at that time people weren't concerned of a shortage, theoretically, because it's in many places, but it's the, the mining capacity, having that and being able to process it is the real bottleneck then. Is that, is that right?
2: Yeah. And we've in recent past let some of our heavy industry in Europe go to other places and China has had a very conscious strategy to develop strength in uh, the upstream part of its value chain. And we can see, for example, there's a number of other metals and elements where we have similar dependencies. Rare Earths, which we need in wind turbines and electric vehicles, is one that causes global concern that we're all completely dependent on on China, Chinese geopolitics for our supply of those. If we want to start producing solar panels in Europe again, there's a whole host of metals which China has almost a complete um, complete dominance of, and we're, we're very dependent. So we've made that historical decision. Um, very difficult to bring production back, but there are conversations going on. Should we, should we get some of that production back so we're less vulnerable? But what that requires it requires quite a lot. And things like energy prices come back in the table, because if you start a factory back in Europe, it has to be competitive, which isn't always the easiest.
0: Oh, OK. Well, you just kind of preempted my next question was the how to bring it back to, to Europe. But and then it goes to the the energy price then. So maybe maybe uh, actually let me switch to Killian and ask him about the the energy price. And then we'll go back to like how can and what is the EU doing to revitalize uh, the sector? What could it do basically? So what what's the my, my question to you is what is the short-term maybe implications or solutions for high energy prices? Oh, actually, that's probably the hardest question for anyone, <laughs> but, but maybe you could tell me what the industry is doing and how are they coping with the high energy prices?
1: Okay. So let's, let's make Europe great again. I think. <laughs> yeah, uh, exactly. <laughs> um so what can we do about the, the high energy price? Um there's medium and short-term solutions. I think, short term and um, there's kind of two things we can do the first is we probably need flexible kind of state aid rules we need to look at how we can have kind of some flexibility there and second uh easier said than done but i think we need more gas we just need more electricity in the system uh some of this is geopolitical, geopolitical. i'm not pointing fingers at, at anybody but we do have the possibility to have more gas in europe but for political reasons that hasn't been the case and that's causing serious issues. So I think short term, that's kind of the, the two things to, to do. I think long term, um, that's a much broader question again. And the key challenge is basically what we need to do is we need to decarbonize our electricity sector. Yeah. So we need to say by twenty forty five we'll have no CO2 in electricity. Yeah. To simplify things, big picture is we need to electrify as much as we can and we need to decarbonize power. And then when you decarbonize power, you've kind of, it's four main sources, hydro, nuclear, wind, solar, and it's about getting the mix right there. You know, we we will need gas in the transition as well. but I think it's very important that we get that that mix right. So I think they're kind of the the key questions. And personally, I think we need to focus on kind of CO2 reduction, less so huge penetration renewables. Let's focus on CO2 reduction. And personally, I would be an advocate of having quite a, an ample share of nuclear power in a our, in our mix going forward. Mm. So that's personal opinion, that's not an opinion of my association.
0: Okay, no, no, but, but this is actually a conversation I have with different people on the podcast is the role of nuclear power. And so maybe I go to your personal views of, of nuclear power. And, and why, why do you see nuclear power as a, as a one of the solutions for the future?
1: Yeah, well, first thing I would say is if we didn't have nuclear power, I would be more concerned about climate change because we wouldn't have have had a stable carbon free source, but we do have that. Yeah. And I think nuclear will have a very big role. Why is basically it's a carbon free source of electricity, which can be used uh, to provide basal customers like us. So I think it is the way forward. There is challenges and nuclear industry have to do things themselves. It's also not so cheap anymore. You know, when nuclear first started, they said it was, would be too cheap to meter. That certainly isn't true if you look at the prices in, in Hinckley and in UK, etc. But I think it's the way to go to have lots of nuclear mixed with renewables in the mix, complemented with hydro, is probably the, the best way forward.
0: Mm-hmm. And and last
1: thing I will say is, we, we're saying we're going to go for 85% wind and solar. I think that's going to be a major, major challenge. Eh?
0: Yeah, and, and maybe you could just describe... Uh, and we just mentioned about the energy intensity of the of the sector in processing these metals. And what uh, can you describe, maybe the role that wind and solar can play in that, or maybe the difficulty of integrating wind and solar?
1: Yeah, so to simplify, we're base load consumers. Okay, so we spoke about aluminium earlier. So your aluminium plant runs uh, three hundred sixty five days a year, twenty four seven. So it's kind of base load; consumes the same amount of electricity. So that's our consumption profile. The issue is the production profile of wind and solar is very intermittent. You know, when the wind doesn't blow, the sun doesn't shine, you get very different kind of quantities of electricity. And that obviously poses a challenge. And to kind of take the intermittent supply with the base load demands, you have this issue of kind of firming costs or balancing costs. And we haven't been able to kind of crack that equation yet. The only place where we can do it well is in the Nordics where the hydropower acts as kind of a battery that you can kind of ramp up and ramp down, which is okay for baseload consumers. But what we're seeing are kind of not what we're seeing, but projecting forward. If we want to kind of run our operations off renewable electricity, we need to find uh, a solution on kind of the the balancing requirements. Yeah. So that's some of the, I wouldn't say reservations because we signed very large contracts with wind and solar. But we just need to find something in the balancing to make sure going forward that they are they are part of the solution for for our sector. Uh
0: huh. And so, some people would say, well, uh, storage technology like batteries themselves could be a solution. Or are there other storage solutions that you see in the future?
1: Um, I don't know. Is a short answer. <laughs> yes. Um, battery and storage and electricity. You know, this is something we've been discussing for for a long time. Um developments on the technological front there have not been impressive if i'm if i'm being honest and we hope that would change it would be good for us if it does change but from what we've seen thus far it's not too positive i think what does have potential is this idea of demand response where we produce during certain hours and we can also we can give some of our electricity to the grid to help balance the grid i think we're going to have more symbiosis uh, i mispronounced that word symbiosis between the between the different sectors of the economy. I expect that. But in terms of storage and balancing, we need much more progress. It hasn't been great so far.
0: Okay, okay, great. And then um, maybe the question for, for Chris is uh, in the mining uh, area, and I don't know if this is your your area or not, but my question would be like, uh, one of the complaints about uh, scaling up battery um, production or shifting towards a cleaner, what. Yeah people say is a cleaner energy system, which okay, is my view as well, is the use of the more raw materials and these, I don't want to just say rare earth minerals, but as you mentioned, many different types of metals have to go into these new types of, we'll just say devices. Um, what What is the environmental impact of that? And how can the industry uh, ensure we have a sustainable energy system throughout the value chain?
2: Yeah, you're right. In general, the more Europe and the world decarbonize, the more the metals demand goes up and the the higher the ambition globally as well, the more these concerns of supply also come into the equation um, and the environmental side of it is is key and important. One thing I'd to highlight up front: the big difference with a metals intensive economy is metals are permanent as materials. So whereas currently we put fossil fuels into our car and they're consumed immediately with metals, we in effect have to mine them once. And if we have the system set up, then we can be keeping them in circulation indefinitely. And so personally, I guess that would be my vision for the future, that we're setting up systems that will run in a circular way as we go forwards. Um, but in the next decade, specifically and beyond, the only thing that can meet the demands is supply from, from mining and refining. In new applications like batteries or others, we need to build up stocks, these metals aren't in our society, and so it won't be until 2040 or so that they'll start to come back and these loops will start to take effect. Mm -hmm. When they do, Europe has a great advantage because we're the first to put electric vehicles on the market. If we can have our recycling infrastructure there, we'll be the first to pick them up because they'll be the first to reach the end of life. So that's maybe the optimistic future side of the environmental equation, but indeed, you also have to make sure that the metals that go in from primary sources are environmentally uh, sustainable. The climate equation is a massive part of that. And making sure that the smelting and refining operates sufficiently. But then on the mining side, there are a whole host of, yeah, as you say, environmental challenges uh, related to um, the pollution, the emissions, the impacts on biodiversity and others. Our companies operate in Europe and operate globally. Um, they they want to meet high standards one thing which is the rationale for bringing some production to Europe is the environmental legislation is is extremely high here as it is in some other regions and so you can have some assurance that if we're mining metals if we're refining them we're doing them in a responsible way and we have several examples of companies who are you know right at the forefront of of sustainability in terms of this equation but it is a big challenge that europe and the, and the world is is sort of grappling with um how do we you know mitigate those environmental impacts to the best way um uh-huh. yeah
0: i uh, maybe I, I press you a little bit on this are there some like companies battery companies or car comp- automotive companies the automotive sector pushing for greater transparency uh, and i'm not an expert in this and i only know what i read in the newspaper but is and so i'm just kind of inferring some stakeholders that that buy these raw materials that that they also need to ensure uh, transparency throughout the value chain and is there is there i wouldn't say pressure but maybe a push for your members to clarify where the sourcing comes from and the condition the local conditions that the materials are mined under
2: yes definitely and it does come from the the downstream um increasingly i think in europe we talk about technologies for the transition. And there's an expectation they should have some sustainability considerations through the life cycle. Due diligence is high on the EU agenda. There'll be a proposal on due diligence covering all sectors in the next months. There is one already, some binding rules for battery manufacturers, for example, that they have to prove that the metals going into batteries have been sourced responsibly in terms of both the social and the environmental impacts. It started off, I think, just in terms of looking at real risks, for example, child labor, or or some of the issues you see, for example, in the Democratic Republic of Congo and and other areas. And quickly, it's expanding to include a a wide range of other sort of environmental and social factors. I think it's a growing discussion. Um, It's one where there's action from the producers of the metals to show that they are responsible because it's also a differentiator. Um, and there's also, yeah, increasing pressure from, from the downstream to, to be able to show that the value chains they have for their electric vehicles, for example, are, um, meeting some standards, but it's also probably an area where we'll have to see a lot of development in the years ahead.
0: Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And sorry, uh, Gillian, did you want
1: to? No, I just want to say on that, I think as Chris said, we're getting some pressure, which is a good thing from the, from the bottom up from, from the companies. But I think probably one thing which we need to look at going forward is kind of top down, as in how we create markets. I work mostly on the climate side, so I refer to kind of creating markets for low carbon products. And at the moment, we just we just don't have that. So if, Mike, if you want to say, I want to buy low carbon aluminium, at the moment, there's no, I don't want to say, you know, kind of premiums, there's no system put in place that has kind of created that. So I think that's something we definitely need to look at going forward for, for base materials, creating demand for low carbon products. The issue is the relationship between the customer compared to many traditional things. If you want bio vegetables, you go to a shop, you say, I want bio, you pay that bit more, it's clear. You say, I want uh, carbon-free aluminium in my iPhone, it's a bit more tricky. So we need to kind of uh, solve that equation with different relationships between the producer and the customer.
0: Yeah, yeah. No, it's a great example. And maybe the example I was thinking while you were speaking was, was the solar panel productions, how how that was happening in Europe, and then China took over the market. And now Europe's not really producing these these solar panels. And it would probably be, um, I guess the threat is there or the threats not there for uh, battery production or some other types of production where it's cheaper to produce these outside of the EU than then in the EU. So what you're describing, if if there's standards, and what Chris was also describing as well, if there's standards within the EU that have to be met, then that incentivizes and creates a separate market for high quality or, I don't know, more sustainably sourced materials. Is that, is that right?
2: Yeah. Europe will have a solar strategy next year, by the way, so they hope to bring some solar production back in terms of their industrial policy. They've done the same with batteries, and I think what you say is correct that how europe differentiates itself is is producing products with guarantees of environmental sustainability or responsibility within them certainly what the batteries regulation that the european commission introduced this year is trying to do across the board and we're very supportive of it but it's really hard to compete and to set up these industries to compete against particularly china and um, so depending on who you speak to they'll have different levels of optimism or, or pessimism but um it's a real challenge and sustainability has to be part of the answer
0: hmm and actually uh, that gets back to the the second question I was supposed to ask you a few minutes ago was what is the European strategy or how, how do how, how can Europe rebuild uh, some of these these industries that that left or were relocated or just relied on China to supply materials or the production process
2: on this so there's Europe has to do two things. It wants to look at diversifying supply sources. So if there are other global partners other than, than China, for example, then it might want to look at diversifying on a global level. And the second, as you say, is restarting or starting some level of domestic production. Europe is taking this very seriously. It had a raw materials strategy in September of last year. It set up an industrial alliance called the European Raw Materials Alliance to sort of look at what the conditions are and the finance that's needed to start the whole value chain for for key places rare earths being one battery raw materials being another also things like magnesium where where we just should just look if we want to be so dependent on others um it requires finance first of all so big capital investments if you want to bring some mining or refining or recycling uh into the member states Um, and also framework conditions. So you need a level playing field for the companies who get started here, ensure they can compete with producers who do it more cheaply, who've done it for a long time in China. Um, and so we're saying, for example, you might need some trade measures to ensure that there's, um, that there's a level of equality for a while. You'll certainly need to have competitive energy sources. You need to look at having sustainable energy sources eventually if, if, if you want to to have this supply for the batteries. So I guess it's a whole package of measures. A lot of will there and a lot of industrial will there, particularly on the mining side, you have the additional challenge of where the mine comes. Are the communities around the mine going to accept that 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 will be started? A lot of projects in Europe are are, are slowed down or blocked or stalled because communities are saying, actually, we we don't want to have a mine next to our village or our city. Um, I think that's probably one of the biggest challenges Europe has is it makes sense from an environmental perspective, but I mean, how do you solve the local perspective? Um, not necessarily what you have down the value chain, but, but that's a key challenge we have ahead of us on the mining side, definitely. And mm-hmm. think Killian? I would just
1: add I think one additional challenge is just how the competencies are split. So, you know, environmental legislation, climate energy legislation, that's decided at EU level, that's clear. But industrial policy, it's more member state competence. We do have a director general, which is like a ministry, which covers industrial policy, but that's not their, their bread and butter. So we kind of see that, you know, when things go wrong now, for example, electricity prices, the commission is not very reactive because they're not so active in industrial policy. I think going forward, I think that's something which could change. We would like to see more kind of
2: active commission on industrial policy. Mm-hmm. And. Uh... Just to say, it's like a it's a big contrast with what China has achieved in the last ten to twenty years. They have a very effective and targeted industrial policy. Twenty years ago, they decided metals would be strategic for the transitions ahead. They have built up industrial capacity across the board um, where they can, often through state subsidies, um, which is what is making the the level unlevel playing field globally. But the fact is they have a dominant position across a range of materials. Aluminium, for example, they grew from 10 to 60% of the global market in like 10 years, At the same time we lost a third of our production in Europe. And it's just been a deliberate and effective strategy. Um, And when they don't have the primary raw materials domestically, then they will go and they'll look to buy mines elsewhere. There's been a lot in the media recently about the Chinese uh, approach to the Democratic Republic of Congo. Basically, a lot of state-backed finance for companies to go and buy mines um, from from American companies. And now China controls, I think, 11 of the 15 mines there for something like this for, uh, for cobalt production. So what Killian says is, I mean, it's a stark contrast in terms of the where we might need to get to Europe in terms of a very direct and effective industrial policy. We don't want to do the same as China, of course, but um, the way it's working now and the subsidiarities is is complicating things.
0: Mm -hmm. And and let me follow up on that. Does that mean that uh, your association or we could just say maybe industrial uh, associations should work more closely with environmental groups? Because if one of the key hurdles is expanding mines or even just having production sites, smelters in the EU. And there's these large environmental concerns that are holding it back. How, how how can the how can the companies themselves uh, ensure that high environmental standards, uh, there is some acceptance, I would say, from the environmental side, For the necessity of mining or the necessity of smelting within the EU, if that makes sense. Or, Gillian, you have a strange look on your face. (laughs) No, no, no.
1: it it
2: was a very good question. I agree with it. Yeah, I'm not, I'm not the man to answer it. I think Chris is. Yeah, it's a polarized, polarized debate. Um, Yeah, it is. There is a real polarization. there are strong voices from civil society in particular who say that mining shouldn't be part of the transition um, because of the environmental impacts it has. The reality is that the energy transition has to have metals or materials powering it, and that will require a level of mining. So I'd like to see the conversation go more to what level of standards would should we set to give guarantees in Europe that the supply we have, whether it's domestic or whether it's from global sources are meeting what we would you know, classify as responsible. They should ideally be developed with companies and, and NGOs and other parties uh, together in a, in a room um, in a balanced way. And hopefully that gives some assurance that, that the impacts are, are mitigated to the best extent possible. And I know companies, you know, they, they want to apply these standards. They want to show they're meeting the best in class to supply Europe because it is a differentiator. There is not one way of doing this. There are a whole host of schemes being set up for measuring this. So probably that needs to be rationalized as we move forwards. And another challenge is it's it's Europe is a relatively small player in terms of um, its supply of these materials. And, and a lot of these standards might be globally set. So hopefully we can see some progress. And um, I think dialogue between all the parties and a better understanding is is key. Um, but at the moment, we're at yeah, maximum polarization. I guess. Mm-hmm,
0: mm-hmm.
2: If I would just add to that, the one thing we would always
1: say to, to NGOs is in a carbon-constrained world, the more carbon-constrained we are, the more the increase in demand for metals. You know, the the World Bank, they do reports every every two years kind of looking at the demand for metals. And what you see is in a 1.5 degree scenario, there's a huge exponential increase in demand for metals, for all the metals. So it's not a question of if we need metals, is we will need metals, we need much more. Is more and now it's how we do it <laughs> skip the first question do we need metals because that's that's very clear and all the all the reports all the data back that up
0: okay okay and, and Chris, what you're talking about, and actually uh, and Killian as well, is this, this we need the metals, and it's getting the metals, as you mentioned earlier, into the, I don't know, uh, out out into the system, we'll just say, and, but it's about also recycling it and reusing it, the circular economy then, and maybe we just have a few minutes left, is is to reflect on what's necessary to be put in place to encourage more recycling uh, to ensure that design for example of uh, products uh, are done in a way that they can be that the product can be recycled What what's necessary for the circular economy to move forward both because it's it's both there's things that are being done but it's also we could say maybe theoretical in many senses and what are some of the practical steps that need to be done moving forward to make the circular economy work
2: yeah a lot of action we need to take now to prepare for the future um, particularly for sort of 2050 onwards when when batteries and other applications start to become available but there's also metals we are recycling now so aluminium copper we as mentioned so we we, we do recycle it 50 of what we produce in Europe comes from those sources I think you need to have again an effective value chain for the recycling we need to collect products efficiently um electronics waste for example is an example of things which we are often leaving in our garages or our drawers but contains a lot of metals. So make sure they go to the right place, sort them out in a good way and, 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 and get them to the recyclers who, who can do the good job. Product design you mentioned, that's key. So I, as I understand it, electric vehicle batteries aren't designed very well for recycling currently. They're very hard to, to take apart. So how can we make that easier? As Europe, we usually have a problem that we face a lot of leakage of our scrap. It goes to other less regulated parts of the world large amounts of our computers go to Africa and and it's not very good at all what's happening there so get the the computers to the right place and we'll need investment to set up the the recycling facilities with the advanced processes to to get some of these metals out some of them are used in very low volumes Um, some of them need a business case for example lithium in batteries Um, so I think there's a lot of work which will happen it's also in the regulation uh, but, but needs to happen. And hopefully it's one where Europe can take take the lead. Um, so I think there's no one measure, but a, a whole portfolio of, of measures and to be ready when when those volumes come. And it should, by 2050, make a real meaningful part of where those metals are supplied from.
0: Mm-hmm. Killian, maybe the question to you, but how do we make it work in the energy sector?
1: Okay, okay. Um, good question. So I think... <laughs> is complex. I think in the, the energy sector, I think the the most important thing is to ensure the framework conditions are there for the transition. Okay. And this might seem a bit strange, but a huge amount of what we need is actually not based on our sector, what we can do, but what's provided in terms of the framework conditions. So four fifths of our emissions are linked to electricity. If the policymakers can decarbonize power while keeping it competitive, then we've reduced our emissions by 80%, but we're totally dependent on the power sector there. The complicated thing is we're fully exposed to global competition, they're not. So that's kind of a, a bit of a trade-off. Also moving on or more broader, we need things like availability of biomass, we need carbon capture and storage, we need an upgrade of networks, you need a full transition of the entire economy. But again, so much of that is not our sector, it's based on kind of framework conditions, which, which have to be provided. And last thing I would just say is in Europe we need kind of this is the key decade in terms of industries. Because what we're doing now is we're competing for kind of the the breakthrough technologies. So for that kind of key decade, we need a a relatively level playing field on carbon. Because the issue is now we're the only ones playing carbon, no one else is. So it's very hard for us to invest in these kind of low carbon technologies when you know 40% of our cost might be CO two cost that they don't pay. So it's very hard to have a level playing field and invest in these technologies. So I think we need a level playing field to at least 2030 till these low carbon technologies kick in. And then after we can we can see how we can use that to our advantage.
0: Mm-hmm. And Kelly, I'm sorry, I didn't ask you a question about the carbon border adjustment mechanism that's being proposed in the EU. Is this what you're you're referring to partially?
1: Yeah, well, well that that's kind of. One option. So the, the carbon border is this idea that we in Europe are the only ones who face a carbon tax. So why don't we just have tax at the border for anybody's importing the product? Good idea, good idea good idea in theory, but in practice it doesn't seem to work very well. Uh, we were quite open to the idea, but then we've looked at the proposal. We see so many loopholes. It's so easy to get around the system that we don't think it's going to be effective. So it may be something to consider more medium term, but on the short term, we're quite skeptical that it would be effective. The uh, are there just are-
0: too many loopholes that they created or how? How?
1: Yeah. 100%. I'll give you one example. Um, China, 88% of Chinese aluminum is coal based, 88%, 12% is hydro based. As Chris said, they're over 60% of the market. So what China can just do is they can certify that all the aluminum they sent to Europe is hydro-based aluminum. And that's bigger. The Chinese 12% is bigger than the entire European market. So just by that, you've circumvented the system very simply. Yeah, uh-huh. that's just one example. And given WTO, so World Trade Organization rules, it's very hard even to stop that one example. That's just one loophole. There's thousands, you know, and myself, you know, when I first read the proposal, I got quite excited. How this could be interesting. But then I speak to my members and people who really know how the value chains work, and they're just saying, this will happen, this will happen, this will happen. So that's, yeah, that's kind of the, the challenge we, we see.
0: Okay, and, and my I, I know we're running out of time, but I just want to ask about state aid, because you mentioned it before, and kind of maybe some of the subtext of restarting some of these sectors, or uh, making this transition work, or the recycling of materials, it seems like there there there's a need for state intervention, which is kind of counter to what has happened historically in the past 20 years, we could say, or even 30 years. And what, what, what is the role of governments in, in this process?
1: Yeah. So I think first thing I would say is the road to 2050. So 2050 fifty, we're supposed to be climate neutral. It's not, you know, it's not a linear process. There's going to be kind of peaks and troughs along the way. And what you need is flexible state aid rules to get there and a kind of transition for any state aid rules. So there's a few things. Firstly, on the technology side, you know, if you're going to invest heavily in these decarbonization technologies, you will need some support from the state. And what we've seen, for example, in places like Norway, where we've kind of breakthrough technologies on the other side, the role of the state and innovation funds helped a lot. You will also need kind of maybe flexible rules with regards to electricity, because it's going to be sometimes when there's a huge increase in the price, and maybe we need to find situations where we can balance it out. There are a few kind of the, the things we see. And last we say renewables, for example, renewables, if you look at the curve 10 years ago were extremely expensive. But we have state aid rules which say that sectors which are fully exposed to global competition, they won't have to pay the full surcharge of renewables because they wouldn't be able to compete. So they protected the sector from the full renewable surcharge. Renewable costs has come down. so basically that isn't needed anymore. But if that had not been in place during that key period, the renewables wouldn't well the renewables might have taken off but industry couldn't survive so state aid is basically there to by nature to deal with a, a market distortion and I definitely think we need flexible stated
2: rules uh, in the transition okay great term- thank you mm-hmm. go ahead oh i was just gonna say in terms of setting up production or bringing production to europe finance as mentioned is a key part of that and having access to finance within europe also think probably we should look outside of Europe. There are places we will need to get materials from elsewhere. So are the European companies, can we work with them to set up those projects and to support projects outside of our borders? Once those operations are there, then they have to be competitive and level playing field is coming into the equation. We've talked a lot about the energy side of things. Trade, Trade measures, for example, trade defense is a key thing in many parts of our sector to protect against Dumping um, from other regions of the world, I imagine that will 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 have to continue. And if there's an area where other parts of the world are very dominant, then we'll need to make sure that you know we give the companies the conditions to compete if they're if they're set up, not necessarily state aid, but uh, you know a package of measures. So just mm-hmm. that.
0: No, no, excellent. And uh, uh, you mentioned finance, though. It, the EU has a, a big package for, you know, energy transition. We'll just la- label it like that. And there is money uh, available or so there seems to be. Is is that, do you see that, Chris? Or you see, still see that there needs to be maybe clarity in how this money is going to flow?
2: Yeah, there's two, two sides to the money, I guess, is money for, you um, setting up value chains and money for decarbonization. Probably Killian can talk on the latter. I, I think we're still working out how those financing tools are directed in the right way. There's a lot of work ongoing to set up companies and business cases with banks and other f- sources of finance that the European Commission is, is facilitating. Um, but early days to see how, how that goes. Um, but yeah, it's part of the equation and maybe killing on the decarbonization side.
1: Yeah, and the decarbonization side, I would say that first, you know, when you look at the big picture of the money, you say, oh, that's a lot of money. But actually, when you break it down, there's actually, we're really lacking. For example, what we've seen with the innovation funds is there was too many projects and not enough money. And that's what, that's kind of what we, it's what we see. And I touched upon it earlier, but I think a key part of the equation will be to create markets for these kind of low carbon products. Because without the necessary kind of money for the innovation, you need to be able, you need to stimulate that demand. And I think the product side is something we're not looking at enough. That uh, is something which which could, could help given the lack of money. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So both, you guys both
0: talked about a top-down solution, but also the bottom-up solution or bottom-up demand.
1: Uh... Yeah, we say in industry, we say push and pull measures. So you kind of push measures. So you kind of put pressure in the industry to decarbonize. That's what we have with the emissions trading system with a CO2 price putting pressure. But also we need pull measures when you say, okay, these are the products you can do. If you decarbonize, this is a low carbon product. So you need a combination of push and pull measures. We've got very strong push measures, mm-hmm. but on the pull measures, I think uh, from the rectory side, we need more because uh, it won't all just come from, from customer demand. Uh-huh.
0: Killian, that's great. That's exactly what I tell my students too, is <laughs> teach about innovation, push and pull. So so it's perfect okay just to to finish up here then what what kind of energy system or what kind of we'll say raw material system are we going to see in 2050 and maybe i go to chris first in
2: 2050 uh we will reach our climate neutrality targets i hope and in europe especially um large volumes of our metals using these technologies will be coming from recycled sources which is great, and Europe will have a leadership there. Uh, we'll still be using primary materials. Uh, that will never go away, the need for that um, in in this foreseeable future. But by then, I think the standards and everything and the innovation, the technology are there to ensure that we're hopefully comfortable with how they're produced and used, and both from an environmental and a climate side, is an optimistic view. Great, thanks. And Gillian? yeah from my side i think we're going to see a gigantic increase
1: in electricity demand yeah so i think we for example for transport i think we might move towards electric vehicles and it's pretty pretty clear there's a reason that elon musk is, is the second richest man in the world uh, so i think we're going to see a huge increase in electricity demand that's that's the first thing what that demand will be made up i think we're going to see a huge increase in renewables gigantic but that will not be enough i expect nuclear will make a comeback i think there's going to be a realization that we did we will need nuclear I think coal will be something which we'll look back on and won't definitely won't be in the mix by, by 2050. And the role of gas, it's hard to say. It's hard to say, I don't know. And also with regard to CCS, so carbon capture and storage, it's a hard bet. It's very hard to know how these things will, will go. But I would say with innovation, it's just, innovation is extremely hard to predict. So I think whatever I say today, I would look back in five years and say, that was a stupid thing to say. So I think, uh, and if we look, you know, with shale, gas, all these things, it would, you just, you can't predict technology has its own way and innovation has its own way of working.
0: Yeah, excellent. Maybe I'll have you on five years and we'll look back <laughs> at this and see how things are going. Well, we'll, more fun, we'll, we'll come back in 30 years and have a exactly. conversation. <laughs> so, okay, you guys, thank you very much. I really appreciate the time for coming on today.
2: What pleasure. Yeah, thanks so. a lot.
0: Thank you for joining us for this episode. We produce the My Energy 2050 podcast to learn about cutting edge research and the people building our clean energy system. If you enjoyed this episode or any episode, please share it. The more we spread our message of the ease of an energy transition, the faster we can make it. You can follow us on LinkedIn, where we are the most active on the My Energy 2050 webpage, or on Twitter and Facebook. I'm your host, Michael LaBelle. Thank you for listening to this week's episode.